Okay, fellas. Chow time. Let's bring it in. It's showtime, right? It's showtime. Let's kick some ass. Hello and welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. As always, I am Show. Thank you for listening. Always lovely to have you guys and gals along for the ride with me. This is a special episode, episode 31. I call it a special episode because it's a little shorter. Okay? And I know, I kind of screwed up the numbering convention. We had those two episodes where... The, you know, the TIFF episodes where they weren't numbered, and then, like I said, this is a shorter episode, so is this like a, it's like a half episode, really? Do I want to call it 31, 30 and a half? 30.5? No, we're going to call it 31. I'm a tidy person. I like the sequential ordering of numbers, but the reason it's going to be a little shorter one is because I wanted to get this episode out the day I recorded it. You know, I wanted to get it out into the ether, into the internet for your consumption, so you can listen to my thoughts and engage with me on this because I want to get some feedback on the movie we're going to discuss today. It's called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. This is an episode all about Spider-Man, okay? And we kind of did this, if you guys remember, with Spider-Man Homecoming. It wasn't a solo episode. I had my friend Mark Stanush on. You know, he's a big comic book expert. Maybe we'll have him on another week and he can give some little bit of a wrap-up thought when we tackle Aquaman in a couple weeks, but... We kind of focused a little more on Spider-Man in the Homecoming episode, okay? And I wanted to do something similar, but we're gonna, that's why I wanted to do a, a, a shorter episode for Into the Spider-Verse, because it's a very interesting film. It's an animated movie. has three directors. I don't know how often that happens, but it's, it's interesting to me because of where it stands in the Spider-Man movie, let's say, Pantheon, and also where, how it stands on its own, okay? So before we get into the actual review of the movie, I will give a review of the movie, and I will try to keep it as spoiler-free as possible because for the movies, this is coming out before the movie has actually hit a wide release. I got a chance to see it in the limited release when they kind of had one showing on a Friday at 7 p.m. and one showing on a Saturday at 7 p.m. a couple of weeks ago. And now it's coming out tonight. It's coming out when you listen to this podcast. It's probably already out, depending on when you're listening to it. I'm recording this, of course, on a Thursday evening. And, you know, it's probably the showtimes have probably already begun since it's in the evening now. But I still wanted to get it out there for the weekend crowd, because that's where a lot of people will be going to see this movie. And I wanted to talk about, first of all, where, like I said, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse fits into the overall Spider-Man canon. So let's get started in this special episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast with a look back at the old Spider-Man movies. So, you're the spider-ling, crime-fighting spider. You're Spider-Boy? Spider-Man. You know, I've never really thought about it before in such a grand scale, because when you think about Spider-Man movies... Typically, at least I don't really think about them as a group of Spider-Man movies. I usually think about them in, in where their place is amongst the overall comic book universe of movies, right? And I'm not even talking about Marvel Cinematic Universe, which, of course, has been pretty much the only game in town since 2008. And, of course, we can talk at length about DC and Justice League and Batman versus Superman and Man of Steel. And then you can talk at length, I'm sure, as well about the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, which are fantastic. But 
In terms of the overall comic book universe, so we're including all the X-Men movies, we're including Blade, and we're including the Fantastic Four movies, we're including the Spider-Man movies, we're including the Mar- MCU movies, we're including DC. You know, there are dozens and dozens of movies that have been made, let's say since Blade in the late 90s, okay, where you could probably slot them in any given order, but like I said, I've never really thought about it when it comes to Spider-Man only movies and in in prepping for this segment i realized there are only six spider-man movies i mean you can talk about if you want to buy like the dvds for the animated series where it's just a couple of episodes on one dvd or something like that there wasn't even there was never even a uh a uh movie like batman sub-zero or batman mask of the phantasm right which were actual movies where kevin conroy and mark hamill and others actually voiced their characters batman and the joker in feature-length films versus just having three or four episodes that are like an arc of episodes stitched together and you just watch them like you know in, in a row of four or if that makes sense right so in that sense live action because i think a lot of people point to spider-man and say spider-man was one of the things that changed comic book movies right blade did it and then x-men did it and then spider-man did it right after and then kind of we were off and running in the in the gamut of comic book movies right and of course along the way we got really highs like the dark knight and we got lows like green lantern right so i think you know they're all kind of all over the place but in terms of those six spider-man movies and i'm going to list them for you there's obviously it's just it's just spider-man or spider-man one if you want to call it that's a toby Maguire movie with green goblin willem dafoe as the green goblin right spider-man 2 the sequel again with toby Maguire reprising his role as peter parker slash spider-man and doc ock played by alfred molina you know i first saw alfred molina in indiana jones kind of forget hard to or easy i should say to forget that he was the throw throw me the idol and i will throw you the whip that's alfred molina <laughs> and raiders of the lost ark like at the beginning of raiders when the you know the boulder rolls down anyways we're talking about spider-man uh spider-man 2 doc ock played by alfred molina spider-man 3 the infamous spider-man 3 with sandman venom and i think it's hobgoblin i actually forget i haven't i haven't seen this movie in ages but i forget if if james franco's character harry osborne kind of shows himself as the hobgoblin or just the green goblin again i don't really remember to be completely honest with you but regardless spider-man 3 also toby mcguire spider-man then we kind of went away from toby mcguire we got a new set of Spider-Man movies with Andrew Garfield, the amazing Spider-Man. The first one was The Lizard, where the lizard was the villain, and the second one with Jamie Foxx, when Jamie Foxx is Electro, and Dane DeHaan uh, makes an appearance as Harry. I believe he was in the first one as well, but he actually comes in as Harry and eventually turns into the Green Goblin. And, of course, Gwen Stacy was a love interest in the amazing Spider-Man movies, and that was Emma Stone. And in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, I'm going to say Spider-Man a lot. My goodness. It's like one of those words where you say over and over again, and it starts to lose meaning. Like if you say like, repent over and over again, it's like, what does that word even mean anymore? Okay. So anyway, Spider-Man, Spidey, the web crawler. But if you go back to the Tobey Maguire movies, um, the love interest was, of course, Mary Jane Watson with Kirsten Dunst and that famous upside down kiss. Right. And then finally, I talked off the top about Spider-Man Homecoming. Tom Holland is now Spider-Man for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the villain in the first Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man movie was, of course, Michael Keaton as the Vulture. And I'm sure you guys remember because we all know you guys listen to every episode. Right. <laughs> but we remember that Michael Keaton 
Michael Keaton's performance, I should say, as the Vulture was one of my favorite parts. In fact, it was my my favorite part, the best part of that movie. And I think after Michael B. Jordan, because of course Black Panther came out after Spider-Man Homecoming, but I think Black Panther's villain Killmonger with Michael B. Jordan was my favorite villain performance. So if that's my favorite, Michael, Michael Keaton, I almost said Michael Jordan, Michael Keaton's performance as the Vulture is my second favorite performance. And at the time it was my favorite, right? So... I think Spider-Man, I think Spider-Man Homecoming got it right, okay? I know a lot of people are like, oh, he's too small to be Spider-Man. Well, you know what? Tobey Maguire is too old to be Spider-Man. Honestly, he is my least favorite part of those movies, is Tobey Maguire. And I'm, I, even if Spider-Man 3 had never happened, Tobey Maguire has never, ever looked like a young man. Do you know what I mean? Like, when he was, I don't know how old he was exactly when he did Spider-Man, which I believe came out in 2000, like the early 2000s. I want to say the Spider-Man 1 and 2 came out between, like, 2000 and 2005, like, in that five-year span, those two movies came out. And, like, come on. You know what I mean? Like, the, the guy, when he was 20, probably looked like a 40-year-old. I don't understand. And, and, and that's not a knock against Tobey Maguire necessarily in a bad way, because clearly he's a mega superstar, more famous than I'll certainly ever be. But, so more power to the guy. Don't get me wrong, but he always struck me like, do you guys remember when Tobey Maguire took the role of Nick Carraway in the Great Gatsby adaptation with Leonardo DiCaprio, the Baz Luhrmann um, Great Gatsby adaptation? Do you guys remember that? Nick Carraway, despite being a young man, has always struck me as an older soul. And I don't know if it's because The Great Gatsby, written by F. Scott Fitzgerald, was written so long ago, so it has these kind of affectations that make it seem older, even though these characters are all supposed to be relatively young. I think Gatsby himself is supposed to be a little older, but Nick and Daisy and the characters, I think they're supposed to be in their 20s, right? As characters, you know, who get married and fall in love are in books that take place in the 20s and 30s and so on, right? Because that's just how it was there. It's a convention of the time, right? But... I say that because Tobey Maguire always struck me as someone who suited those roles better, who suited the Secretariat movie role better than Spider-Man because Peter Parker is supposed to be a teenager. And even if he's not a teenager, he's supposed to be like early 20s, this kid who is is a genius who just is in university, maybe if you want to go that route. And he never really fit that part to me. Even when that movie came out, I would have been, you know, 10. If, if 2000, I would have been 10, right? So in 2005, I would have been 15. And I guess it just, even then, it, it just weirded me out. And only now as an adult can I really articulate it. But it's just a strange thing to me that that version of Spider-Man is the definitive version to so many people. Because Tom Holland... He's English, you can't tell. He's a great American accent, but he looks like a young Peter Parker. The aspect of high school and of being awkward in high school for Peter is something that I think the MCU version of Spider-Man absolutely nailed. I think they nailed it. But anyways, I know I, this is, I didn't actually mean for this part to be about complaining about Spider-Man, but I did want to get that off my chest a little bit because I think that kind of informs how I see the other ones. And to be fair, I, I guess I left out Andrew Garfield Andrew Garfield, to me, wasn't actually that bad of a, of a Spider-Man. I don't know how good of a Peter Parker he was. Does that make sense? I kind of, I kind of feel the same way about Tobey Maguire. I, I think he was actually a decent Spider-Man because when he has the mask on, you can't really see him, right? You can't see him. And same goes for Andrew Garfield. I thought he was a very a wonderfully quippy Spider-Man, but 
he was a little too confident as Peter Parker. I know this is like the nerd, you know, pushing up your glasses, splitting hairs, like, oh, Andrew Garfield was too cool to be Spider-Man. You know what I mean? So I, I know. I get what you mean. They're all actors. They're all going to be super attractive. They're all going to have super attractive girlfriends. And I mean, you know, maybe it's a little unrelatable, which is another reason I think I liked Tom Holland because, yes, he's a movie star, but he looks like a younger man. His friends look like younger people. Anyways, Andrew Garfield, I know, is kind of at the bottom of the list for a lot of those guys. I do, I will always submit that it's not necessarily his fault. I don't necessarily think it was Andrew Garfield's fault. I think it was a lot of other things went wrong. I think his chemistry with Emma Stone is undeniable. Perhaps that's, that's you know, found somewhere in the in the fact that they were once together and they they didn't split up. I believe you, you've, you've read multiple interviews. Oh, you can read multiple interviews. I have read multiple interviews with uh, with both of them over the years where they both said that they didn't really break up because they didn't like each other, but they broke up because their schedules took them in different places. Filming made, filming made it impossible for them to be with one another. They both love each other still and have great respect for one another. You know, there was that time at the, I want to say it was the Golden Globes. I don't think it was the Academy Awards, but it was the Golden Globes or that maybe it was the Screen Actor Guilds Award Awards. And you know, Emma Stone won for La La Land a couple of years ago, and Andrew Garfield was the first on his feet to give her a standing ovation, right? So, you know, it's kind of nice, but I guess what I'm saying is that chemistry that they had as Peter and Gwen Stacy clearly was was built in something, was founded in something real, and I think that was probably the best part of the Amazing Spider-Man movies. But anyways, I wanted to rank these movies, okay? I wanted to rank where these six movies are before we get into Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And I'll start at the very top because, and I, and I think I've done this before when we did uh, Avengers Infinity War, I kind of tiered them. Okay. I think the top three, one, two, three in terms of where they are right now, before we add into the Spider-Verse are pretty clear cut to me. Number one is Spider-Man two. It has to be Spider-Man two because Spider-Man two is a movie that elevated the comic book movie into something what it is today. Like I don't, I legitimately don't think that without Spider-Man two, or I should say, I do think without Spider-Man two, we would not have the same quality of movies we have today. I don't think the Marvel cinematic universe would exist. I don't think DC movies would exist. I think Spider-Man two is a movie that is responsible for that. Now, do I think that there are MCU movies? Let's just say that are better than Spider-Man two. I do. Do I still think that Spider-Man two is the best comic book movie out there today, I do not. I think I, th- I think a number of the MCU movies are, have, have been better, and I think even The Dark Knight is better. But at the same time, those movies would not have happened in the manner that they did if this movie did not exist. And for that, I kind of put it at the top. Not to mention the villain. I think movie, I think I've said this before multiple times. Movies are just as good, or, or, or as only as good, I should say, as their villain. And Alfred Molina, who plays the tortured Doc Ock, who kind of is corrupted by the AI unit on his arms, mechanized arms that he really just creates to help him move around the lab, really, right? Uh, I think the portrayal of that character is, is so tragic. And tragedy, you know, it's great for heroes, but I love when tragedy strikes villains. I know maybe that makes me sound like a horrible person, but and that's why maybe it's why I like Two-Face, and it's why I like Mr. Freeze, and it's why a lot of the villains have tragic backstories that make you feel sorry for them, but instead of them doing heroic things or trying to overcome it, they turn to crime and negative things, right? And, you know, I, I love that aspect of villains, and I think Doc Ock is the perfect encapsulation of the whole tragic backstory. And, of course, it's one of the first times we saw it in a huge way. The graphics slash CGI still stand up. 
You know, a lot, a lot of really fun things happen in Spider-Man 2. I think the, the second movie on the list I would put is Spider-Man Homecoming. And I don't want to go into detail about Homecoming and why I love it so much because we did a whole episode of this podcast on it. But suffice so to say that the reasons I mentioned in the, in the very Spider-Men ranking, I guess I did right before this, is that Peter Holland looks the part, he acts the part, he sounds the part. The, the suit looks really cool. I believe Homecoming was the first suit that had the eyes move, like in the cartoon. That was really cool. I think maybe that was just a, just a limitation of the time, which is why Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield couldn't do it. But it looks really cool in the MCU. And, of course, Michael Keaton's The Vulture. I just talked about villains at length. I love The Vulture. I love, 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 love The Vulture. He's so cool. And, of course, number three is Spider-Man, the first one. It's the first Tobey Maguire movie with the Green Goblin. And, of course, that's Willem Dafoe, as I mentioned. Again, another great villain. It was a fantastic origin story. And, of course, it was the kind of the first major time we saw that with great power comes great responsibility story. So, you know, you can't really complain too much about that either, right? So Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man Homecoming, and Spider-Man. <laughs> Again, lots of times saying Spider-Man. I'm sorry. But those are the top three. And then kind of in that bottom tier, honestly, order these movies however the hell you want. Spider-Man 3, The Amazing Spider-Man, and The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I actually personally think, maybe this is a controversial opinion, maybe this is some sort of hot take. I think the first Andrew Garfield movie, The Amazing Spider-Man with the lizard as the villain, is better than Spider-Man 3. And I think a lot of people over the years have come around and said, well, you know, The Amazing or Spider-Man 3 isn't as bad as you remember. It is a an effing terrible ass movie that is a terrible movie only perhaps surpassed by the second amazing spider-man with electro and the green goblin those movies are abysmal at least amazing spider-man tried to do something a little different with a different portrayal of peter and a different portrayal of gwen stacy and sure you can point to the weirdo dark black peter phase where he's like overtaken by the symbiote and he dances down the street and now now infamously so right i don't know it's just i don't really I don't like Spider-Man 3. I don't think it has aged well. I, for, frankly, I think it's aged even worse. Honestly, I think it's aged worse. I will say, though, that Amazing Spider-Man, and to be honest with you, I don't remember if this is the end of the first or second Amazing Spider-Man movie, but it's the one where Paul Giamatti is the rhino. And I didn't mention him in the beginning of the, you know, when I said, oh, the Amazing Spider-Man is with the lizard. The second one is with Electro and the Green Goblin. I didn't include him in that list because he's not really a villain. And it annoys me because in the trailer for this movie, they show you, they show you multiple shots of Spider-Man fighting the rhino. And you learn that, and again, I forget if it's the first or second one because, and frankly, I'm not interested in going to fact check this because they're terrible films. But the trailers made it seem like they fight for a huge part. Okay, and they only fight at the very beginning when he when he's like the the flunky that gets overcome super easily and at the very end and they don't even fight at the end. It's Spider-Man runs at him and then it like zooms in on him in the right before credits roll and then bam cut to credits and I'm like. I, I felt so cheated. I felt incredibly cheated. And I may have actually talked about this on the podcast, but I don't know. I just, that movie is a disappointing one in so many ways. And I'm so happy that Spider-Man is now in the hands of Marvel because that's where it deserves to be. Okay. So that's my ranking of the existing Spider-Man movies. Spider-Man 2 is number one. Spider-Man Homecoming is number two. The original Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire, the first one is number three. And then frankly, you can order the rest as you want because they suck. But you know what? That is enough of the old Spider-Man movies. As they say, out with the old, in with the new. And like I mentioned off the top, this movie review that we are doing is all about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the newest Spider-Man movie to come out. So 
in this review, I'll talk a little bit about the movie itself. We'll talk about it as much as non-spoilery as possible. It'll be a quick one because I don't want I don't want to get into the actual plot. I just want to talk about some of the notable aspects of this movie, including the directors and so on. And I also want to talk about where it's going to fit into those movie rankings you just heard. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. You know, when it comes to the idea of alternate realities, parallel universes, opposite dimensions, you know, there's probably no medium, if I had to really posit one, that this is better than comic books, right? You know, it's, it's, and I think it's because different people with different backgrounds, whether it's social or economic or, you know, genders or whatever, different, and, you know, all these people with different backgrounds, and of course, all those people have different ideas which are informed by their backgrounds, right? They all have an idea of what, let's say, Spider-Man should do, right? This Spider-Man should do this. This Spider-Man should do that. Another Spider-Man should do this. Batman does it the same way. Superman does it the same way. All comic book characters really do it, okay? And... What would really happen if that happened? If, if, if that was the case, right? There's some interesting ones out there, comic book wise. You know, there's that like I think it's called Red Dawn, another Superman one, where it's about what would happen if Superman had crash landed in the Soviet Union versus in America, right? How the world, how would the world be different? Probably really different, right? And I find that so fascinating to me, which is why the different versions of Spider-Man are a lot of fun. Okay. So in case you haven't guessed, that is what Into the Spider-Verse is about. I mean, it's kind of a kind of a tale that kind of tells you what it's about in the name, right? It's a but don't worry about it. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is a it's a succinct, creative, it's wildly funny, it's a fantastic superhero story. And I think what my favorite part about it is that it's literally for everyone. It's for comic book veterans people who know every little reference about that movie, and newcomers who only know that Spider-Man shoots webs out of his fingers and crawls to walls and makes wisecrack jokes, right? So, of course, the film, you know, despite the fact that it deals with universes and multiple universes, rather dimensions, realities, etc., it's pretty straightforward. And here is the, the you know, dime a dozen, in a nutshell, description of what the movie is about, okay? So it's kind of like... You know, thanks to one of the many rogues in Spidey's colorful gallery. I, I wrote this, by the way. I wrote, kind of wrote it out because I, I wanted to distill it down to two sentences without spoiling anything, <laughs> okay? So you, this information is not anything you would not find in the trailer itself, okay? So this is what I personally, Shoaib Ali, wrote. Thanks to one of the many rogues in Spidey's colorful gallery, a portal opens in one of the various dimensions, which brings all the various spider people into one reality, and young Miles Morales, our protagonist, is tasked with not only helping them get back to their own universes, but also coming to grips with his own new reality that he is, in fact, now Spider-Man. And you know what? That is kind of, that's what the movie's about. It's about, it's about those two things, but it's not like, it's a pretty simple plot, right? And if you boil it down, the coming of age story that Miles endures is pretty powerful. Okay. And don't get me wrong. Is it something that we have seen before in, in movies, not even just superhero movies, but like in, in most coming of age stories that are not about people with gigantic superpowers, right? Certainly it is. 
right? Of course it is. That's not new, right? Every superhero, on top of that, if we're going to go back in towards the comic book territory, right? Every superhero does need an origin story, after all, right? And I think what makes it so fun is how Into the Spider-Verse frames it. Miles has to go through his own origin story with every other Spider-Man watching him and criticizing him and giving him advice, and that can't be easy, right? I think the film, there's a lot of interesting things, you know, it has some terrific voice work. We'll get into the voice work in a second, but one of my favorite things that it does is because it introduces all these different Spider-Men, you know, what it, what it really does is it makes you kind of not really choose because you kind of like all of them, I would, I would guess, right? Some of them are a little weirder than others, certainly, but I, I would posit that you feel, you the viewer, you the audience, so I'm talking about myself, I'm talking about you guys, you know, you the audience feel or will feel connected to probably one of the Spider-Men, Spider-People, Spider-Beings, <laughs> more than one other one. And I'm I, sorry, I don't mean one other one specifically, but you'll pick one over the others, and you'll probably follow that person, you'll probably relate to that person, that character, more than others. And that's just down to personal preference. Like, for example, Miles is the, I would argue, main character of this movie, but because there are so many other Spider-People, you can pick any, other, any of the other ones and find them so fascinating. And I, I, I'll admit, I would say all but one of them are side characters. The other character who is Spider-Man as we know it, that character is the other quote-unquote main character, okay? That's, and I think their dynamic is super interesting. Now, Miles, of course, is, I would say, a little a young child, and he has never learned to be Spider-Man before, and he doesn't get to learn just by himself, but he learns by trying to ape, trying to imitate, you know, adult Spider-Man, who is the Spider-Man of our universe, as it turns out. So I related to, for example, more to that Spider-Man because, I mean, there are a lot of things he went through that I went through, like this character you learn, you know, he got, went through a divorce, I went through a divorce, like all these things are known in the comic book things. But I guess, like I said, you, all, you will, as an audience member, pick one that you relate to more than the other ones. And that's not super uncommon. Now, I just mentioned the voice work, right? I want to talk about Miles' voice, the voice work of Miles and the voice work of, you know, Spider-Man, okay? And those two are voiced by, well, Miles is voiced by Shamik Moore, who is a relative newcomer, but he kills it. He makes Miles sound, like, sympathetic. He makes him sound like a petulant teenager, but also one that kind of has this world-crushing burden on his shoulders and when he gets to his or his own origin story, you feel, you know what, you feel bad for him because he is the main character, because he's a young man. You feel like you can maybe perhaps relate to it because what would you do if you got imbued with the power of Spider-Man? I like to think I'd be really good at it, but truth is it's probably super awkward. And I think they do a really good job of showing the panic that sets in when these, this uh, essentially a prepubescent boy is, is gained the, uh, you know, he's super strong and he can shoot webs and he can stick to walls and all sorts of stuff. It's really, it's very entertaining, but it's also very real, you know? And on the other hand, you got Spider-Man and Spider-Man is voiced by Jake Johnson. And I think Jake Johnson might be known to most people from New Girl. I don't actually watch New Girl. I think his character's name in New Girl is called Nick. I think don't quote me on that because I'm not actually sure. If, you, if, you, if his name sounds familiar to you only from this podcast, it's because he was in that movie uh, Tag. You guys remember that movie, Tag? So he was one of the men who played Tag with his friends growing up. He was like the loser stoner character. And the funny thing is, his Spider-Man, and I feel like that's the kind of character he is on New Girl as well, and I've seen him in other things as well. 
uh, you know, other movies, other TV shows, not not anything huge, but I feel like this version of Spider-Man kind of is in that same in that same you know, in the same vein, let's say. And it's kind of interesting because even though he seems to have been kind of typecast, it's it works so well for this version of Spider-Man that it's fantastic. And look, the rest of the voice acting cast is just absolutely phenomenal. I'm going to read you their names. Okay, Chris Pine from Star Trek, of course. Haley Steinfeld, she was in such things like the Pitch Perfect movie. She's going to be in Bumblebee soon, you know. Mahershala Ali, he of the Oscar win. Brian Tyree Henry, you know, he's in Atlanta, of course. He's in, uh, he was in Widows most recently. Lily Tomlin, everyone knows who she is. Zoe Kravitz, John Mulaney, Nicolas Cage, he was pretty hilarious. Catherine Hahn, Liev Schreiber, they all have pretty major parts, and they breathe life into their characters with an incredible degree of skill. And, of course, Jimmy Moore and Jake Johnson, they do incredible jobs as well. And the other part of this movie that really is fantastic is the animation. Now, if you've seen the trailer, you know that, okay? You know that it's fantastic. It's interesting because it combines 2D almost, it looks like it's been hand-drawn animation, and it combines it with modern 3D renderings. And um, if you were to tell me it's all this 3D, I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. But it looks so, like, it's like a matte look, if that makes sense. But it also, they, they move very fluidly. The characters' lines, the lines of their, of like, of their, out, their outlines blur and move. You know, whenever, you know, whenever a spidey sense happens, these little squiggly lines appear above their head. So you, the viewer, know what they're looking at because otherwise, how would you know, right? It, it does some fantastic things. And... What I really liked is that all that interesting visual stuff, it's still in there, but it's it's mostly just interesting camera angles and one shots and stuff like that. Whereas after Miles gets the power of Spider-Man, right? After he gains the power, he's bitten by the spider as, as they all have been, right? It's then, it's then that the movie starts to be more creative, like... When Miles is running in the street and I guess he's, he, you know, his spider sense allows him to hear a lot of things around the city and the city seems really loud to him. And, you know, like the comic book boxes with the letters written in them, like when, you know, when you want to see comic book text over a bunch of different panels. So you can, it's kind of like a narration almost like inside someone, inside someone's mind. That starts to appear on the screen of the movie and he thinks to himself, why am I thinking so loud? And that, and that stuff is so creative to me. Because not only does the movie look like it's a comic book, a moving comic book, but the the dialogue and the sound effects and things like Miles jumping off a building and then you see he's like you know yelling yeah and as he's yelling the the actual word like y e a h h h h h h h is like following him as he jumps over rooftops. It's so fascinating. It's it's really creative. I love it. It just pops off the screen. You know, it blends that dialogue with thoughts and spoken words. It just looks like it's all been ripped off a comic book, and it's very, it's just very visually pleasing, very visually stimulating. And you know what? Look, it's probably not a surprise. The film's producers, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, who, of course, you guys haven't heard me talk about before at length about the Solo movie, Solo a Star Wars Story. You know, they've done a lot of other stuff as well, but in animation specifically, they have done this before in terms of creating new styles with Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Maybe you, know, you don't think that movie is very good. It's a very funny movie. It has a different looking kind of animation than your typical Pixar movie, which again, of course, looks amazing. I'm just saying that Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs looks different just as Into the Spider-Verse does. And then at the same time, the Lego movie looks like that too. And the Lego movie, I feel like the Lego movie is a little closer to Into the the Spider-Verse than 
a ch- cloudy with a chance of meatballs because of how Lego pieces look. I mean, everyone knows what they look like, right? So the Lego movie, another really interesting kind of, it almost looks stop motion, right? And of course it's all CGI and, and it all just has such unique animation styles and the direction, of course, can be understated. I mean, I know Chris Miller and Phil Lord are these kind of superstar producers. Like, I don't know if they're quite Jerry Bruckheimer level, but they're definitely pretty high up there. But I, I do hope that despite their involvement, that, you know, having directors Bob Persichetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman, like I mentioned, there are a number, a number of directors, it does not go unnoticed because it's a truly amazing movie. Not, not only does it deserve your time, I think it deserves wider recognition. And I think it I think it will garner a best animated feature nomination. Of all the animated movies I've seen this year, I think it deserves the award. I truly do. It's my pick to win, but I think that it will be tough for a Spider-Man comic book movie to overcome the prestige that comes along with something like Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. And if you guys remember the Isle of Dogs episode on this podcast, I didn't really like it. I think it was self-indulgent. I think it was a little bit racist, frankly, but it still had a fantastic voice cast. It was very, it was charming. And I think that is going to be the movie that the Academy is going to be like, oh, Wes Anderson directed an animated movie, just like the fantastic Mr. Fox. Well, they sign him up for an Oscar because, you know, Wes Anderson is kind of that auteur director if you, if you subscribe to the auteur theory, right? But I personally think that in a, in a year that has Isle of Dogs, let's see, Wreck-It Ralph 2, The Incredibles 2, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, all from four different animation companies. I think this could be one of the tightest, best animated feature races we've seen in a long, long time. And that's good. That's good. Even if Spider Into the Spider-Verse doesn't win, I'll be disappointed if it doesn't win. But at the same time, I think that is good for the medium of animation because, look, more competition breeds better movies. You can't just have Disney and Pixar winning the movie, winning the, winning the awards every single year. Otherwise, you won't get movies like into the Spider-Verse or like Isle of Dogs, whether they are good, like the former and not so good (laughs) as the latter. But regardless, to wrap things up, it's not just a good comic book movie. It's a good film. It might be one of the year's best films. It combines humor with a coming-of-age story. It combines action with this really great father-son relationship, and it does it all by using this really cool animation style. And you know what? If more movies look like this going forward, then sign me the hell up. That's it for me today. Like I mentioned, just a quick one. Just one only on Spider-Man. I wanted to get this one out there, as I mentioned at the top, uh, uh, before the weekend crowd could go see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse because I love interacting with you guys. You may think I'm making it up, but I do actually get a decent amount of, you know, for a small podcast, relatively speaking, I get a decent amount of interaction, let's say, so... After you go see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse this weekend in theaters now, please come and chat with me and we'll uh, pick up the other end of this conversation a little later on. Like I mentioned on the last episode of the podcast, now that Spider-Man's kind of out of the way, we're going to be talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, Creed 2. Hopefully we'll talk about uh, Robin Hood, which I've not yet seen, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We might switch things up on the fly as we are want to do here on the podcast sometimes, but... At the end of the day, that is it from me. I hope you enjoy Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Have a good night.